Coming from the McDowell Heating and Air Studio, welcome to the True Crime Mamas podcast. We are a not-for-profit organization dedicated to shedding light on the many tragic homicide and missing person cases across North Carolina. We strive to honor victims and their loved ones by honestly and non-sensationally sharing their stories. Hey, True Crime Mamas and friends, this is Amber, and I'm here with Christina. Hey, y'all. We got a very awesome opportunity uh, that was brought to us. Uh, We read a very good book um, called Ship of Blood uh, and is by Charles Oldham. His um, his publisher wanted us to read it and we did. And it was we're so glad we did. It was so good, wasn't it? It was really good. And I have to say that I learned more about North Carolina history than I actually realized that had happened. So that was something really interesting for me. Same. Yeah. I'd never heard of this case before. I had never heard of half of the political things that happened in this case. I didn't know anything and reading it was, was amazing. And we were able to do an interview with him, uh, with the author, and he gave some very good insights and very good details um, about his book. Well, you ready to jump in? Let's do it. All right. super excited because we have author Charles Oldham, who is here to talk with us about his new book, Ship of Blood. Welcome, Charles. Well, thank you for having me. We're super excited to talk about your book. Um, Amber and I both read it very quickly because it was so interesting. So we're excited to talk to you a little bit more about it. And we'd love to hear your perspective. We have a lot of questions that we hope you can help answer for us. Absolutely. I'd love to. Awesome. Well, Amber, I'm going to let you kick off the questions. Okay. Um, The first question that we have is, um, obviously, how did you hear about this? I'm embarrassed to say I knew nothing. I did not. I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about this this story. So this is the first I've ever heard of it. How did you find out about it? Well, there's no need to feel embarrassed because (laughs) I came across it completely by chance myself. Uh, It was about... um, I'd say it was about three or four years ago when uh, I had finished my my first book, which was published back in back in 2018, and that also was a, a true crime story of um, an old, little known case that took place in North Carolina back in the early 1900s. But after I finished that one, I was looking around for another another topic because I knew I wanted to do a second book, and I came across this story just completely by chance. Uh, I found a uh, an article about it that was written for the North Carolina Historical Review back in 2014. It was an article written by a a professor named Van Newkirk Sr. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he has a son. Van Newkirk II is actually a writer. Uh, uh, He's written a number of pieces for magazines like The Atlantic. But uh, Dr. Newkirk Sr., a a longtime history professor, I think, uh, Right now, I think he's he's the president of uh, Fisk University in Tennessee, but uh, he wrote he wrote this article 
again, that I mentioned that was published in a, a journal back in 2014, just documenting the case of the Harry Berwind mutiny case and the murder trial of these, uh, these three African-American men who were put on trial for mutiny and murder back in Wilmington in 1905. And I was just, it, it was just a, a standard article that's about 20 pages or so, just summarizing the, the basic facts and narrative of the story. But I was just, I was really struck. And like, like you, I was surprised at how in the world have I never heard of this case before? Because just the, the sequence of the events is just so, so fascinating and, uh, and frankly unpredictable. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe that no one had ever written a full account of it before that I had, that I had seen published somewhere. So I was struck by that. And I thought, well, you know, somebody really needs to. So I was looking for a new book topic. So that's what I did. That's so super exciting. Mm-hmm. So the thing I think that, I guess I'm going to say the term mind chatter, it gave me mind chatter was how the first autopsy occurred or really the only autopsy that could happen. And you talk about the um, crew member who um, had passed away and it was the autopsy happened where he died. And to me, that just seems so unusual just because the cases we um, usually cover are probably um, post-Civil War forward. And in those cases, everyone we can document where somebody went to a mortuary and there was an autopsy. And this one, it just seems so highly unusual that it happened on deck. Yeah. Well, not not really unusual given the setting. And, and to, to really, really illustrate that, I guess I need to give a little, little bit of background. I mean, this was in, it was in 1905 when this happened. And the, uh, the murders... There were there were a total of five men who were shot and killed on board this wooden seagoing vessel, and it happened about uh, about twenty five miles off the coast of uh, Southport, North Carolina, a place that uh, you know I, I imagine a lot of your a lot of your fans are, are familiar with near uh, near Wilmington. But uh, on the ship there were there were a total of eight eight men. There were four officers and four crewmen. I call them. The four officers, all of them were white, and the four lower decks crewmen, all of them were of African descent. Well, it turned out that all four of the white officers were murdered. They're, they were shot and killed by, and this is this is the whole mystery that we're that we're dealing with from the outset. It wasn't clear from the outset exactly who did what, but at least one of those African American crew members they shot all four of the white officers and threw their bodies overboard. And their bodies were never recovered from the from the open sea. And one of the black crew members also was killed. And again, this was mysterious at first as to exactly how that happened. But his body was found on board the, the deck of the vessel because another another ship came along and uh, <clears throat> uh, intercepted the vessel after these after these shootings took place. And they took the crew of the other vessel took a, took a, took a over the uh, the Berwyn and brought it into port, the nearest port, which was actually Southport, and that's how this turned out to be a, a Southport case in the first place. But uh, anyway, to make the long story short, uh, you asked about the autopsy on the the body of the one fellow whose whose body was not tossed in the ocean. And Southport, North Carolina, at the time was a, a very small you know, fishing and trading trading port, just at the, on the at the mouth of the Cape Fear River, and it was. Frequented by uh, you know relatively small you know, trading vessels, fishing boats, and that type of thing. So when it turned when the ship was brought into port 
and they they did to perform an official autopsy on this one fellow who had been shot to death. Uh, as you can imagine, there was no there was no mortuary. There was no very little in the way of an organized hospital in the area at the time. So they just they called the coroner out to the ship, and he went on board the ship and said, um, "Yeah, well, here's the body. So I'll do my physical exam right here on the deck of the vessel." So it was a pretty uh, given the time and place that would have been a pretty pretty routine procedure to do, but it seems kind of kind of crude by by today's standards, which of course it is. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, you would never think that would happen. And especially if they knew something sinister had happened, you would think that they would want to do something a little bit more thorough with the body. And I know that um, I was amazed reading that people were coming on board the ship just to see what happened. And it was a spectacle. And to me, that is so far-fetched compared to what we know today. And I thought that it might not have been typical for an autopsy to happen. So it's interesting that they were just industrious and said, Hey, we're going to do it here. And mm-hmm. that's just how it's going to happen. And uh, yeah, back then, of course, there was no, no concept of uh, securing a crime scene, you know, in the way that we you'd think that it should be, should be done today because you think, you would think now, of course, the police come in and just put the court and everything off and uh, dust everything for, for evidence, fingerprints and that type of thing. But uh, that was just, it was uh, it was not within within the knowledge or the capabilities of the the folks in Southport, North Carolina, in, in 1905. So. Makes complete sense. It reminds me, though, um, Amber, of the Lawson case. Um, I don't know if you remember, but they talked about how um, the I guess it was the brother of the husband. He actually um, had the house. He kept it intact from the murder, and people could pay money to tour the house. And people, as they would go through the house, would take tiny souvenirs. For example, the daughter had made a raisin cake for Christmas, and people would pluck a raisin from the cake and take it with them home. So it's just, I guess, if you, you have no concept of keeping things intact or rules, it probably does make a little bit of sense that this was something that was a once in a lifetime opportunity to see. And that's probably why everyone gathered at the boat, because where else are you going to see this horrific crime scene? And maybe it was something that back then was something highly, um, I don't want to say people were desensitized to it, but also people attended hanging. So it wasn't what we're used to today. Well, the, the title of my book says it all, Ship of Blood. I knew it was a spectacle because everybody, it, the word circulated very quickly through the town that these murders had taken place on board the ship or blood stains on the deck of the ship and everybody to see that. So, Wow. Different times. Oh, yeah. Um, in the book, you talk a lot about um, the fusionist party. Um the political party, if if they had remained intact, do you think that the outcome had been the same as it was? Yeah, well, just by way of background, again, uh, that was in the 1890s, which was roughly, say, about, about 10 years before the events that I described in the book. And um, what occurred in the, the mid-1890s was that uh, economic times were, were very hard. Uh, there was the Depression of 1893, which caused a great deal of uh, uh, economic hardship, especially in rural North Carolina for farmers. And, uh, you know, bearing in mind, this was only only about 30 years after the end of the Civil War. But that um, that economic environment brought about a, a really unusual level of um, political cooperation between African-Americans and I, I hate to use 
I hate to speak in these terms, but uh, sort of downscale um, white farmers who were really feeling impressed by this economic depression. But uh, they tended to make, for a brief period there in the 1890s, these you know, relatively poor white farmers made political cause with African-Americans. And they formed what, what they, again, you, you call it the fusion party at the time. And as you also alluded to, it didn't last very long because there was just so much, so much innate tension between those two groups that they discovered within a few years that they didn't have as much political common cause as they thought. And it was later in the 1890s, 1898 specifically, that uh, there was a something that was called the white supremacist movement that arose in to counter that in order to seize back political power. And they the white, white supremacists won the 1898 election through blatant uh, race baiting and equals uh, to uh, you know, racial prejudice and, th- prejudice and that type of thing. So that's a little bit of the background. Um, but that, that illustrates what the environment was, was like in 1905. A few years later, by that time, the white supremacists were, were firmly in power. And what I describe in the book is how, in Wilmington especially, you know, in that white supremacist era, these three black guys who were put on trial for murdering four white guys could not have expected to get much justice from the political and legal establishment at the time. Although it turned out very surprisingly in the end that justice was able to prevail through all of the all of the events that I described in the book. But um, to your question, again, um, I mean, if if things had gone better for the fusionist movement in the 1890s, then uh, the entire political history of North Carolina would be completely different. Uh, if, I mean, if, if those folks had been able to you know, keep it together and maintain their um, political, political coalition that way, then I think the effects of the, the Jim Crow era would have been much lesser. And um, maybe we wouldn't have, um, we probably would not have suffered through the nearly as much uh, you know, racial discrimination as we saw as occurred during in the early early 1900s. Um, it, in a way, I think it's sort of a moot point because uh, when you think about it, um, most most historians who have studied that period in the 1890s have figured that the, the fusionist movement was really kind of a fluke. And sadly, it was probably doomed to failure from the beginning because it was uh, it, it was just a, a sort of haphazard uh, sort of um, political marriage, marriage of convenience, or you might say marriage of desperation, which was um, just not very, not very practical from the beginning, I'm sorry to say, but that's politics. That saddens me deeply, though, just because if you think through what politics look like, I mean, that was so ideal. I mean, when I was reading it, First of all, I didn't know anything. I don't know if you had heard of the Fusion Party before, Amber, but for me, it was just amazing thinking, wow, this they, they could really have, if they had come together with the right intentions, there could have been some really powerful things that happened. And just reading about the government um, being so diverse and everyone having a place and it had nothing to do with the color of skin. I mean, that's what we would want government to look like today. And to me, it was incredible to see something happen so early. To hear it's a fluke is sad, but also 
it does show possibility and maybe there is future for government that is more diverse. Yeah. Well, times are better now. I mean, obviously. Um, and I, I hate to, I hate to really draw too many parallels between the present day and back then, because it, it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really fit. I mean, our, our society and our culture are in indisputably much, much more advanced and things are a lot better these days. Politics today is, is nasty in many ways. Politics back then was nasty, brutish, and violent on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we have, we have our challenges today. I mean, we have our challenges to what we consider to be our democratic norms and uh, the stability of our government institutions. Uh, but back then, lynchings were a daily occurrence throughout much of the South. And you know, the, um, you know, we can get into this a little bit, but the, the Wilmington insurrection itself was a, an extremely uh, horrific and probably singular event that I don't think we'll see again. Let's hope not. Yeah. Oh, yes. Why do you think there wasn't mass outrage from the public? Well, uh, as you might guess, I mean, the people who would have been outraged by it were primarily African-Americans. And by this by this point in, in history, they really had no means to express any kind of political outrage or um, they had no political or legal recourse to speak of. And so for many of them, the only, uh, I mean, the only solution they had was to uh, vote with their feet, as you might say. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't vote with the ballot. So they have, for many of them, the best thing they could do was uh, leave and move north as uh, untold thousands of them did during that, during that time period. Those who stayed, I mean, they were simply uh, no no voice and they had been, they were cowed into, into silence, basically. Um, I, for, you know, white people who lived in the South at the time, uh, I, I have to say the vast majority of them were not of the type who would, who would actively take part in a, in a lynching, most of them, because they would have viewed that as a, just a, a really brutish and uh, horrific thing to do. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to put a percentage on it, but you know, most Southern whites at the time would have said, well, I'm law abiding, I respect authority and that, and that type of thing and would never take part in that. And I probably 88% of them were, but then it's the other 20% that you have to worry about. Those who are, um, <clears throat> who are more, more violent by nature and who are, are apt to, um, you know, take part in that type of thing and have, um, have, um, whatever you might call it, sociopathic tendencies and are, are willing to, you know, take advantage of their whatever perceived superiority that they had, whether it's based on race or whatever. But um, <clears throat> most whites at the time, I mean, they supported segregation and they believed in the whites have their place, blacks have their place, and never the twain shall meet. And when the when the entire you know political establishment in a place is based around that principle, then it's it's not all that difficult for people who who are particularly mean and cruel and violent can can take advantage of that of that political political situation to act stupidly and maliciously in that way 
which has unfortunately happened in, in many, many different places. Unfortunately. Yeah. I liked what you said about black people going and voting with their feet and moving away from the situation. And you would think that there would be some type of suffering, um, at least even in the workforce, because you had willing and able people to work. And if they're moving away, I would imagine that's contributing to what's going on economically and um, not having enough workers to do work. Um, do you, was that part of it at all? I mean, was that part of um, what was going on um, with economics was that there weren't enough people to work, so there was a shortage? Well, that was definitely part of the, uh, the economic uh, reality throughout the out during those days, um, I'm sure that for a lot of um, a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the the white economic establishment, they 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 did have a they did have concerns about their their uh, their labor pool at the time. In fact, I can recount one one particular story that I uh, that I just put in my book um, during the uh, the Wilmington insurrection of 1898. Uh, James Sprunt, who was uh, one of the uh, probably the biggest uh, economic player in Wilmington at that time. He he owned something that was called a uh, a cotton compress. Uh, it was a uh, basically a big uh, cotton uh, packing facility where um, farmers sent all of their cotton crops from around the surround from the surrounding area into Wilmington to be packed up and placed on ships to overseas. And Mr. Sprott, who owned owned that business, he had a uh, a very large labor force that was almost entirely black. And when this, um, when the racial insurrection took place in Wilmington, this, uh, <clears throat> this politically motivated mob of white people decided to overthrow the city government. And they are, and in order to do so, they were roaming through the streets and they were shooting people down in the streets. And this Mr. Front, you know, even though he was, he was very much at the top of the, uh, economic pyramid in Wilmington at the time. And he certainly did not want to see his political uh, political position challenged. But at the same time, his workers in his in his factory were really having their lives threatened. And he was in a kind of a difficult position as to whether he was going to, you know, speak up and try to um, try to defuse this uh, riot that was going on. Was he going to uh, uh, Support it and thereby places workers in danger. Now, you might say that that's 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 really what you would call a first world problem for a, a very wealthy man who is dealing with a who is sitting on a very very high uh, position of privilege. But um, it gets to what you're what you're thinking of. I mean, there are unforeseen consequences even for the people people who consider themselves to be unassailable. Very interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking, we're talking about the, the Wilmington, the massacre that happened um, while reading it. I know Christina felt the same way. Um, couldn't help but compare it to the events of um, it was January 6, 2021 that happened. Um, do you think if the insurrection was successful uh, that we would see a government similar to post massacre Wilmington? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really hate to contemplate what things would be like if uh, the January sixth riot had succeeded. Anyway, um, you know, it's it's not really 
I hate to compare it because I mean, what happened on January 6th, just so it, it was frightening in, in one way, but it was also very, very comical in another respect because you could see that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very well organized. Um, and I don't want to, I hate to step on anyone's political toes here, but I, I probably won't. But, um, you know, the people who were leading the charge into the Capitol building on that day, they were basically clowns who were acting foolishly and stupidly. And uh, they, I think they learned pretty quickly that they had, they overstepped and they did some really stupid things. Tragically, some people were act, were physically hurt as a result of it, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was sort of, it was all ridiculous in a way, but at the same time, very frightening. And naturally, it causes us to worry, you know, who else out there is of a mind to try to do something like that again? And if it's, there's another attempt made, is it going to be better organized and will it be better, um, better planned and could it actually succeed later on? Um, I, I think that's the, uh, really the political conundrum that we all have to have to face right now, uh, because... Uh, what happened in Wilmington in 1898 was actually a very, very well orchestrated, very well planned, very calculated um, attempt to overthrow a an elected city government. Much smaller scale than just trying to overturn a national election. In Wilmington in 1898, it actually succeeded. I mean, the people who planned it were, were the ones who had the political power at the time, and they intended to flex their muscles, and they were willing to kill people in order to accomplish that, and they did. There were probably about 60 dead bodies lying in the streets by the time it was over, and it was very, very horrific, obviously. So uh, it's what happened when um, people decided that uh, uh, they could ignore the the, principle, the basic principles of democracy in order to further their own economic interests and political interests. And that's something that we should, uh, as Americans, it seems like we should always guard against. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, reading it was texting with Amber and just telling her that it really gave me just chills thinking about what the world could be like if something like that could happen again. I mean, even if it did happen in a small scale in a town the size of Wilmington, that it does challenge democracy and not knowing about something this critical in American history is sad that that's not something that we're taught about on a large, on a large scale. Um, Just because I think it's something that's so important. That's one of those almost never forget type of moments where you want people to know this is not how we do things as Americans. We really should respect the whole democracy process. And for me, um, not knowing about it and learning about it, it was definitely um, something that made me just rethink um, how what I know about American history. I was telling Amber that I have to find a North Carolina history class to take. Just learning that one piece was enough to really make me want to learn a lot more about the state that I live in. Yeah. Well, it's real that uh, it wasn't until about 25 years ago that historians began to really seriously confront you know, what happened in, in 1898. It was, it was primarily because the, the centennial of the event was coming around. And it was in the late 1990s when some of our best historians like uh, Timothy Tyson and David Selsky, they started, started delving into it. And they, 
they were their accounts of, of what happened happened back then. But um, you know, I myself, I I grew up in North Carolina, lived here my life. I was born in 1974, and I went through high school and college, really um, knowing knowing very little, if anything, about about what happened back then. And that is the uh, that's obviously very unfortunate, but it's good to know that uh, the word is getting out, and it is the knowledge is becoming more more widespread now. Better late than never. Yes, better late than never. I got so riveted by um, our conversation that I let my questions um, disappear. Let me come back to this. So um, the next question we have, and Amber, how did I assign myself all the questions that um, I can't pronounce? (laughs) So here we go again. I'm probably um, not going to pronounce this correctly. So I will allow you to um, train me because I'm sure you know because you are an attorney. But what does the um, term informa pauperis mean? And is this something that could still apply to criminal law today? Oh, yeah. It means uh, basically indigency. Uh, a, when a defendant in a criminal case does not have enough money to hire their own attorney, then they, for indigency, and they seek um, um, appointed counsel. And of course, I mean that's that's a routine thing in uh, all criminal cases these days. I'm uh, I was frankly a little bit struck that um, you know back in again 1905 in Wilmington in a, a murder case of this type that uh, the the court went to such lengths to make sure that these guys had appointed attorneys. And the the attorneys that were appointed to represent them were, were actually, they came from some of the most prominent white families in Wilmington who actually had been involved in, if not necessarily carrying out the riot several years before, but were closely associated with the people who planned it. And they ended up being appointed to represent these black murder defendants. And <clears throat> I would have to I would have to guess they were not happy to be put to be placed in that position, but and I and I can't imagine that they were paid very much money, but they did their jobs and they filed the motions that they should have and they they um, they defended their clients. I mean, to the extent that they could in front of the the juries that they had to deal with. And you know, I don't want to give everything away, but uh, you know, even after their even after their clients were convicted and uh, sentenced to death, they didn't give up on them. And those same attorneys, they stuck with it, and they actually worked to you know build up some public sympathy for these guys. And it was also surprising that the newspapers in Wilmington caught on, and they realized, well, you know, these three guys, they didn't all do it. I mean, at least one of them is probably guilty, but the other two probably are not. And they actually wrote that in the newspapers, and sympathy built up for them to the point that they're their attorneys took the case to the Supreme Court, and they took it to the desk of President Theodore Roosevelt and later President William Howard Taft, and they got eventually they got presidential clemency against all odds, which was I mean that's what makes it most most fascinating to me. Same. Yeah, I found that amazing that not one but two presidential pardons took place. That's mm-hmm. unheard of, especially back then. Mm-hmm. It is uh, yeah, it really is. That's it shocked me when I read it. I know um, the early 1900s was honestly was the death penalty more preferable to prison well, because I know the conditions were horrible in prisons. Mm-hmm. So, 
Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting philosophical question. Uh, back then and now, um, you know, I can uh, looking at it from the outside, you, you might be tempted. Well, you know, if um, you know, if the alternative to death is languishing in prison for years and years and years, no hope of ever of ever obtaining clemency or getting out, then we might tend to think, well, yeah, I'd, I'd rather just have it over and be be executed and so forth. I can tell you though that uh, from my relatively limited limited ex- experience in dealing with um, you know, as an attorney in dealing with uh, death penalty cases, I was never deeply involved in that type of thing. But I can tell you that every every death row inmate that I ever communicated with was very firm in their in that they would much prefer to be serving a life sentence than a death sentence. So uh, the <laughs> once you're there. The the desire to remain remain alive and to avoid execution is very strong. So it's uh, hard hard to say unless you're actually there. But I do know that these these guys in this case that I wrote about, uh, two of them at least, the two of them who probably were largely innocent in the case and really did not deserve to be to be implicated in those in those murders. They were very determined, and they they fought like hell to save their lives, and they did everything they could. I mean, with them using the limited legal resources that they had at the time to you know, to pursue their cases, and uh, they were very determined. And they were I I really marvel at the the kind of um, inner strength that they must have possessed to um, keep to keep up the legal struggle. It lasted over over six years. They were they were in for more than six years from the time they were convicted until they received their, their eventual clemency in the case. So um, they want to live, so no doubt about that. You can tell and they um, live life well. They didn't just say, okay, well, this is the hand I was dealt and I guess mm-hmm. this is my life. And I me mean, reading that they were model prisoners and that they wrote these compelling letters and even had help with doing that. That was probably the thing that struck me the most is the Mm -hmm. fact that they had people who believed in their cause and that, that just shows the type of men they were. Yeah. It was just a, it was a remarkable confluence of events that they were able to, you know, make contact with people on the outside who were willing, willing to help them. And, you know, in, in the end, I think I, I really have to chalk it up to the fact that it was a federal case. Um, because the the murders took place on board a ship off the coast that made it a, a federal case rather than state murder proceeding. And um, I mean, from the beginning, I think the, the federal judge in Wilmington was, he was more serious about trying to maintain at least the, at least the appearance of due process. I mean, more so than the, than a state court judge would have been at the time. And I think ultimately that's what, that's what saved their lives. That's what made it possible for, uh, justice to prevail in the end. So I was reading in the book and the movie that you described seemed absolutely terrible. I mean, just a failure of trying to tell the story. Why do you think that no one in Hollywood has taken an opportunity to tell the story in the right way? Because this could be a movie that could win an Oscar. If you really think about, like you talked about all the events leading up and everything that happened, this is such a unique, compelling story why do you think no one's jumped on it? Well, I think the simple answer to that is that nobody, no one has yet written the 
the full accurate account of what in the case until now, of course, not to not to pat myself on the back too much, but I, I do kind of uh, I do think that I've uh, I've given the given the events a pretty pretty thorough and accurate treatment of the way the way it actually went. I mean, the movie uh, that they made back in the 1950s it was called The Decks Ran Red, and I uh, try as I might, I I couldn't really really determine exactly how uh, how the filmmakers decided to go with this particular story. Um, I, my best guess is that they based it on some uh, some um, stories that were written back in the 1930s for some for some of the uh, kind of a pulp detective magazines that were popular back in that day. And I'm not sure how the how the writers actually got a hold of the story, but um, some of those detective detective accounts were just very salacious and very uh, very uh, um, kind of. Uh, we would call it film noir. That was popular back in the 1950s. These uh, these uh, highly uh, highly dramatized, sexualized stories and, and that type of thing. And that's what we saw in the decks ran red um, because they they completely changed the setting, they changed the time period and so forth. And they had they of course they added the uh, the romantic interest of the, the beautiful exotic woman who was on, who was on board the ship when in fact of course there was no there were there were no women on board the. The, uh, the Berwyn vessel. So they uh, they they kept the same names of the, the people who appeared in the historical narrative, but they changed everything else and they they warped everything, and they just made it into something that was really too just so so melodramatic that uh, even home doors in the 1950s thought it was silly. So that's why that's why the movie didn't do well. Um, but I think you're correct that uh, you know when you when you look at the the historical account. Of what happened on board the ship and what happened in court and what happened in the through the political process and all of that, it it does make it a compelling story that could make a make a very nice film. I think. Really. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you want uh, our listeners to take away from your book? If anything, I I would really love for people to see this story as, as a source of of hope. If anything. That is—it uh, just seems like that's that's something that is uh, far too too lacking in uh, in the media, in culture, and in politics these days. Uh, what I what I tried to present here is a story that uh, that is completely true, but it took place in the South in 1905, which was the very darkest days of the Jim Crow period. And here you've got a you've got a scenario where these three black guys are put on trial for murdering four white men, and you know facing the the most daunting odds that anyone could possibly face in a in a murder trial. Um, justice actually prevailed in the end, and as I as I mentioned, I mean it's it's the result of uh, some very very fortuitous circumstances for them. Uh, I mean, as uh, I mean, as unlucky as they were from the in, in the beginning to even be placed in that situation, uh, I mean, they were stuck on board the ship with a with a man with one guy who I think turned out pretty clearly to be a, a narcissistic psychopath, and he was just a he really was just a vicious killer, and he was guilty and he was hanged and probably deserved it. But the other two guys, um, they they were caught up in something that was not of their own making. I don't think, and. You know, even though all the decks were stacked against them, they they prevailed. And you know, I would like for I would like for people from North Carolina in particular to to look upon this and say, well, 
you know, history is nasty. This was a very, very nasty and brutish period in our, in our history. But, you know, even back then, even in the worst of times, you know, people could rise above the, the stereotypes. And they could, they could actually take this case and they took these guys, these guys cause and they pursued it because they thought it was the right thing to do. Even people whom you would never expect in that time and place to take an interest in seeking justice for these for these guys, and yet it, it worked out in the end. This is a case, you know, it's kind of like um, like people used to say about Watergate, and uh, going back a bit further, you might say about the Dreyfus case in France. In the end, the good guys won in, in this story. So, if if that can be a source of inspiration to anyone, then I would I would be very pleased by that. Fantastic. Well, we greatly appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your book. It's Ship of Blood and it's by Charles Oldham. And can you tell us where it's available? Absolutely. Well, it's available on uh, Audible and it's also available on uh, Kindle. Um, But uh, I always recommend to everyone um, interested in purchasing it. uh, The best way to do that is to order a copy directly from my publisher. And my publisher is Deep Glass Books, uh, based in Richmond, Virginia. Website is uh, beachglassbooks, all one word, dot com. And um, we can um, we can certainly um, provide provide signed copies with free shipping to anyone who wishes to make a purchase on uh, along those lines. But again, it's beachglassbooks.com beachglassbooks.com. We'll be sure to also put the link up on our website as well as Instagram and Facebook for everyone who's interested in getting their own copy. I highly recommend this book. Um, Thank you again, Charles. Well, I can't thank you enough for for having me and I've uh, I've enjoyed speaking with you. We've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. So that does it for our interview with Mr. Uh, Charles Oldham. That was amazing. That was really amazing. And I love that he um, at least entertained our questions that we had about parallels to what's going on today. I know it's hard to compare history to what's going on in the world, but I'm glad that he gave us his opinion on that. Yeah, he, he gave very good answers to to those questions. So yeah, I'm glad he he entertained us. <laughs> yeah, and I'll have to say I absolutely devoured the book. And when I first got it and realized it was a history book, I was I'll say a little nervous that it wasn't going to be as exciting as it ended up being. But number one, we learned something. And number two, I heard about something that I had honestly never heard about before. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said um, before, I had never heard of this and and there was a lot of history in this book and you will definitely learn a lot of things reading this book. Yeah. And I mean, whether you're here in North Carolina or you're somewhere in the United States and as far as we know, we have people who listen to us even in South Africa, there is something great to learn. And I think one of the things that he said that I just really liked a lot was that the story is a source of hope and that um, there is, um, even in the worst of times, that people can prevail and justice rules. and Justice prevailed. Yeah. Justice, justice prevails. prevailed. That's, that is the theme, I believe, of this of this book to me anyway, justice prevailed. And in a lot of our cases, 
we talk about, they don't have a happy ending and it's usually an ending that is not what we want. So to be able to talk about a case where there is a happy ending and you end up knowing what happened to these two individuals, I think that also just gives hope knowing that they are able to come out of it. It was a terrible, unjust situation and they still made it out, even though they went through so much, they made it out and they were ended up being okay. Yeah. I mean, it was really an impossible situation. You know, if you think about it with everything and yeah, they, they made it out alive. It's crazy. I have to ask you, Amber, were you a little outraged by some of the things that happened? Oh, absolutely. Um, Like I said, I didn't know any of this and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe some of the things that actually occurred during all that. Yeah. And I think that our ancestors would stand by and I'm glad that we live in a world today and it's not a perfect world, but hopefully we'll never see a replay of some of these events that happen. And one thing I love about what we get to do is we get to shine the light on stories and to make sure that people are getting justice they deserve, even if we have a little teeny part in just telling the story. So um, that was something that I liked a lot, but it also just really gave me this need to understand more, even more about history and, you know, what, what's happened in the past, we can always learn from and we can learn and be better for it. And that's one thing that I'm taking away from this book. Absolutely. Same here. Same here. I've got a lot to learn about North Carolina history, apparently. Same. (laughs) Maybe we can sign up for a North Carolina history class together. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. As Charles mentioned, uh, this book is Ship of Blood. Uh, by Charles Oldham, and his publisher is Beach Glass Books, uh, and it's he said it was available Kindle, um, Audible, and also if you want a physical copy of the book, go to beachglassbooks.com and they'll hook you up. Yeah, we'll be sure to put the link on our website and also on social media so you're able to get to it because. Um, I probably would spell it wrong myself. So we'll be sure that we have it out there for everyone. But please, um, we ask you to go grab a copy and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Absolutely. Well, you guys take care and we will see you next time. Talk soon. Bye. True Crime Mamas podcast is a production of TCM Productions. Theme music created by the talented Brian Anderson. Cover art created by design extraordinaire Marley Soden. Studio sponsored by McDowell Heating and Air. Keep your home comfortable all year with McDowell Heating and Air. True Crime Mamas podcast is property of True Crime Mamas LLC. Support True Crime Mamas by following us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our website at truecrimemamaspodcast.com for sources and more.